Welcome to Faith Foundations with Open the Word with Circle of Friends podcast. I am your host, Gwen McCaslin, for this discipleship series. Okay, so we are picking up today part two of um, Context for Scripture. Now, I said last uh, last episode, and I want to reiterate it because I want you guys to, to hold this, so get ready to write this down. The Bible cannot mean something for us today that it did not mean in its original context and to its original audience. So I did you catch that? Because I'm hitting you right off the bat with it. The Bible cannot mean something for us today that it did not mean in its original context to the people it was written to in the time, in the place, in the culture that it was written. It cannot be taken out of that and given a different understanding or interpretation. There is one interpretation for a passage, and that is the original intent of God and the physical author to the physical audience. So that clarified, and and that you can see really clear in the letters and the epistles of the New Testament, because you can't take something written to Ephesus and, and just put it in any context. You can't um, apply something written to the Jews like the book of Matthew to just any old context because there's specific things that are being addressed. There's specific things that are to be understood when you're reading it. Um, There's specific things that are being highlighted and addressed that only make sense when you understand that he was writing to the Jewish people. Um, Okay, so we talked... Real quick, we talked in the last episode about how important observation is uh, and how important interpretation is. Uh, And we're going to go more in depth in interpretation because I want to talk a little bit about what goes wrong when we're trying to understand the interpretation of a passage. Uh, The first thing I want to do is I'm going to read a quote that I found, uh, and this is out of Living by the Book by Howard Hendricks. Unfortunately, many people today have decided that the laws of logic do not apply to Scripture. To them, it doesn't matter whether you see the text as blue and I see it as green. In fact, it doesn't really matter what color the text actually is. For them, the meaning of the text is not in the text. It is in their response to the text. I don't know if you caught that. For them, the meaning of the text is not in the actual text It's in their response to the text, and everyone is free to have his or her own response. The meaning becomes purely subjective. Okay, isn't that just what our culture is doing? It goes on to say, but if we are to have any hope in interpreting God's word accurately, we have got to start with a fundamental premise. Meaning is not our subjective thoughts read into the text but God's objective truth read out of the text. As someone well said, the task of the Bible study is to thank God's thoughts after him. He has a mind, and he has revealed it in his word. The miracle is that he used human authors to do so, working through their personalities, their circumstances, their concerns. The Holy Spirit superintended the crafting of the document. And each of the human authors, God's co-authors, we might call them, had a very specific message in mind as he recorded his portion of the text. 
That's why I like to refer to the step of interpretation as the recreation process. Now, I, I'm quoting so much of this because it, this is just so good. So let me keep going here. We're, we're attempting to stand in the author's shoes and recreate his experience to think what he thought, to feel what he felt, and to decide what he's deciding. We're asking, what did this mean to him before we ever ask, what does it mean to us? What he's getting at here is that sometimes we come to scripture with glasses on, glasses that have been shaped by our experience, our culture, um, our stories, uh, our expectations. Um, And so when we come to scripture, we don't take those glasses off. We don't try to put on God's lenses and see um, truth through, through what God's intending things to be. So in other words, we come with our cultural lenses and view everything through that cultural lens. So we're mapping our story, our culture, our lives onto a passage rather than understanding that that passage actually grows out of a context. And I need to get my context out of the way so that I can understand what was intended in its original setting. Um, Okay, and so I think a lot of the church today is not considering the context of things. They're actually not realizing how much they're mapping uh, today's culture onto a passage. I'll give you one very specific um, example. Um, And the women's movement, the women's liberation movement has really impacted our thinking as women. Okay. And there's not a, you know, not all of it's bad. There's a lot of good pieces in it, but a lot of times what happens for us as women is that we get offended by some of the stuff we'll read in a story or a passage and we need to stop and pause and really look at the cultural pieces and how women were treated at the time across culture. And then look at how God moves in the, in the Hebrews and the laws that he puts down and just how protective he is of women that we would miss if we're looking through our cultural lenses. We're going to miss just how protective God was for women in that day and that time. Um, and so I think that's one of the areas. I think our independence as Americans is another thing that culturally can really mess up how we understand a passage. Um, I think it drastically impacts us understanding the church as the body of Christ um, and how each part fits together and works as a team and a unit. I think we don't function quite like the early church did and quite like um, – the culture of the Middle East does and how they consider family and those kinds of things. So I don't think, like, for example, when it comes to the gospel coming to the disciples, we don't understand or connect with the depth of the cost for them. Uh, So when I talked um, a couple podcasts ago about how it was family and brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers who turned them in to their deaths, I don't think we quite grasp just how significant that would be if it was happening in our day and in our time. Um, And so that was the cost they were paying to follow Christ, to embrace the gospel, to walk out of um, the Jewish faith and embrace him as the Messiah. Um, And so, you know, it's those kinds of things where our frame and our lens 
keeps us from being able to understand the significance of what's the details of what are written. Okay, so I'm going to move on, and I want to talk about some other barriers uh, to correct interpretation, and um, this comes pretty directly from Howard Hendricks. Um, And so I'm going to outline some of these because I just think they better sum up anything I could put together. So um, one of the first uh, barriers is language. We have the barrier of language. If we were Hebrew speaking, we could pick up the Hebrew Old Testament and we would know exactly what certain words mean. Um, But we don't. And if we could understand uh, the Koine Greek, we could pick up and understand words like hippomeno and get this the subtlety of what it means that it's to bear under the weight of. You know, we would automatically just have those things in our brain and we would understand them. Um, but the old, the old and New Testament have all been put into English. So we have a language barrier. Um, and, you know, the, the example that I can came to mind for me is when you interact with somebody where English is their second language, um, you feel that language barrier. You feel yourself trying to find words that cross over or you'll see them grappling to find the right word in English to express and to, to um, capture right what they're intending. The original hearers of the word did not have as many struggles with this because this was written in the common language of the time. Um, and so that's what you have to understand. When the other podcast we talked about Uh, how the Bible was written in in the common language of the day. So in other words, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew and it was written in Aramaic because those were the two languages that were spoken at the context that the Bible was written in. Um, And then the New Testament, we had Alexander the Great that swept across all of that area. And with him, he taught Koine Greek and he unified that whole region with Koine Greek. Well, what do we see with the New Testament? Those writers chose to write in Koine Greek so that the largest amount of people would be able to read and understand what they were writing. Uh, Second barrier, cultural. Um, In order to understand the culture, you have to reconstruct their communication, transportation, trade. um, So understanding trade routes, what they would have traded back and forth. Arc. Uh, agriculture at the time. Uh, Think about how many passages in scripture talk about wheat, um, particularly like Jesus's parables about the wheat and the tares. He would have been walking right alongside fields and probably pointing at wheat or olive trees or vineyards or, you know, he was using the agriculture of the day. He was using the topography of the land. Um, And so in order to understand culture, you've got to reconstruct occupations, religion, perceptions of time even. To understand the timing of Holy Week, it is very important to understand that everything north of Jerusalem counted their days one way, and everything Jerusalem down counted their days starting at different times. And so one started from sunup to sundown, and one started from midnight to midnight, like our days run. Um, and so if you understand that, you understand how uh, if you were from the north, you were going to sacrifice at the right time, but it would be at a different time than everybody would be sacrificing for pe- or for Passover Uh, Jerusalem and down, they would be doing that at a different time. Now, why would that be important? That is just such a random detail. Well, the disciples are all from Galilee. 
They're all from north of Jerusalem. They were on a different timetable. Um, residents of Jerusalem and, and other areas lower counted their days differently, and so they sacrificed their lambs in Passover at a different time. So why is this important? Well, it's important to the lay of the week of Christ's crucifixion because, remember, we have that Last Supper. Well, Last Supper is Passover. That's the Passover Jesus celebrates with his disciples. Well, that's done before he dies on the cross. The thing you that's really cool to understand is that the moment that Christ is sacrificed on the cross, crucified on the cross, they are doing the sacrifices in the temple for Passover at the exact same time that the Lamb of God is laying down his life on the cross because of the time difference, because of the way the days were counted. Um, And so that is a cultural piece that when you reconstruct it, you all of a sudden understand Jesus didn't have the Passover meal early. Um, It actually was two different timetables. And so according to Galilean time, they sacrificed um, at a different time than all of Jerusalem would have. Um, And so I just found that kind of stuff interesting. Um, That would be an example. So religions of the time are another cultural component. For example, when you want to understand Ephesus, you need to understand the Temple of Diana and the worship that was going on there because that was the context of these believers. Um, And, you know, things like that. You need to understand um, from the book of Romans that they were scared to death they might offend a god. And so they had, they tried to cover everything. And so Paul starts the book of Romans off by saying, well, let me, you know, when I came into town, I saw this statue to an unknown god. Well, let me tell you about that unknown god. He took a characteristic of the culture of the day of that town um, and we even have a, a, a phrase that we use, when in Rome. <laughs> okay, well, where does that come from? Well, the understanding is that, you know, when Paul walked somewhere, he took in the culture of the town. Um, and so if there were things that he could use to kind of tie the gospel in and help them to understand it better, he used it. So moving on, we covered the cultural piece. There is... Um, a literary piece that we need to talk about. For example, you can't read the Song of Solomon with the same logic and and just rational thought that you would read the Book of Romans. Um, you can't because one is an analogy. It has to be read into. It's poetry. It's you know it's it's a story that has a deeper meaning. Um, the Romans is just a very clear layout of the gospel truth um, and what happened with the old covenant and what happens with the new. Um, it's actually a the-, the theology book of scripture. And so very different meanings. And you can't read them with the same logic. You have to consider what you're reading. Um, there's actually different types of literature. Um, you've got historical, prophetic, those kinds of things. Um, and actually there's 14 types of literary genre. There's apocalyptic, which would be um, your revelations. There's biographical, which is telling telling more um, events and details, kind of like an autobiography, except it's just a biography. 
there is something called ekonomium, which it means to sing the praises um, of things. So in other words, that would be considered uh, more of your psalms. Uh, it would be it would have the high praise of someone or something. Uh, rehearses in glowing terms the subject's origin, its acts, its attributes, and, or its superiority, um, and exhorts, it would encourage the readers to incorporate those same features into their lives. So in other words, this would be Proverbs 31, um, it would be Hebrews 1 through 3, Psalm 19, Psalm 119, those kind of passages. Okay, um, there are also narratives, um, this would be like Genesis to Ezra, and it's telling the story of the events of what happened. Um, all of those things are going to be tied into their cultural context, too. Okay, so what else do we got? We got exposition. Um, these would be Paul's letters. It's a very carefully reasoned argument or explanation. It's very well organized. There's a logical thought process and flow. Um, terms and wording are crucial. And so with those, you want to understand the original language because Paul had a lot of different options for different wording, and so he chose what he chose for a reason. Um, sometimes they have climaxes, uh, but the aim is agreement and action. Anyway, so you know, understanding these different pieces are incredibly helpful. Um, there are parables. For example, with parables that Jesus tells, you can't give a parable – crazy meanings. They were told in one place, one time with a very clear meaning. So in other words, you can't take one parable and give it all of these other contexts. It has a context and it can only be interpreted in that context. Um, and so, you know, for example, uh, the wheat and the tares, you know, it. he's referring to a very specific event he's got a very specific context it's told in and so to understand what he's talking about with the wheat and the tares you have to go to that scripture passage and understand what's been done before what's been done after what is the context that that parable is explained in so let's see there's proverbs which obviously would be the book of proverbs they are collections of wisdom statements there's even tragedy, which I thought was kind of interesting. Uh, they have the story of Lot, uh, Samson. Um, if you want to know what I'm referencing, um, I'm referencing a chart that is out of Living by the Book, Howard Hendricks and William Hendricks, um, father-son. But um, Howard Hendricks is out of Dallas Theological Seminary, and he is an awesome resource. Uh, but on page... Uh, 217 is where I've got this chart in front of me of just all the different types of literary genre um, and describing them. So in any case, what I want you guys to understand is I want you to get a taste of the fact that there is so much out here to explore. Um, and, and my goal always, I always say this, so forgive me for repeating myself, but it's not to be exhausted exhaustive as a resource. It is merely to inspire you to do the search. So, you know, when I quote some of this stuff, I'm not, I'm not aiming to give you a college lecture or anything like that. I, I purely want to challenge you to understand that when you open up the scripture, you can't just pick a verse. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay. 
So let's see here. Um, one of the other things that Howard Hendricks mentions in his book is five keys to interpretation. Uh, and one of them is context, like we talked, to observe the text and to ask yourself what I actually see. Uh, the second one is context, the literary, the historical, the cultural, the geographic, and the theological context. Now, with theological context, the one thing I want to mention here is that the theology context for the New Testament is the Old Testament. You cannot understand Jesus apart from God the Father and how he's interacted with the Hebrews over time, with people from creation to now. Um, and so that is the context for the New Testament. So in other words, you can't take Jesus and separate him out from who God is from the Old Testament. And sometimes we're guilty of that. Um, but Hebrews 1 tells us that Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. Um, and if you want to understand how the Old Testament and the New dovetail together, Hebrews is your book. Um, because what Hebrews does is it brings all of the Old Testament into the New Covenant. And it talks about how Jesus and the New Covenant, Jesus is the better high priest. He is the better sacrifice. He is... Um, he is the better king. He is the better everything. And so he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. It is the better covenant. His payment is the better payment for sin because it's once for all. Um, and it's not something that has to be done and never quite fully takes away the sin. Okay, so understanding Hebrews really helps you understand how the New Testament is... Um, grows out of the Old Testament and connects to it. Comparison is the next thing that is kind of a key uh, to interpretation. And the one thing I want you guys to know about that, it is it means to compare Scripture with Scripture. Um, so in other words, the Bible cannot say one thing in one place and contradict itself. So in other words, by taking into account the whole of what is said about salvation, we can understand that on one side of the coin, we are chosen and predestined, and on the other side, we choose back. And we can understand that at the big picture of it, there's two sides of it, but they don't contradict each other. Um, and so when we look at Scripture as a whole, we understand that um, God loves us before we loved him. Uh, we understand that while we were still sinners, Christ loved us. And then on the other hand, we understand that because Christ loved us, because we've been saved, it motivates us to grow in Christ, to seek him, and to be on a journey to become more complete and more mature in Christ. So it should be impacting our actions. We should have fruit in our lives. That fruit is not what saves us. That fruit is what shows that we are alive, that shows that we bear good fruit because we are in Christ. That fruit is not what saves us. That fruit is what reveals the nature of our hearts before a holy God. Those are some of the, f the pieces I kind of had written down. Uh, under cultural pieces, um, I brainstormed just some ideas real quick of things like um, Jewish feasts and the sacrificial atonement system in worship. You know, understanding um, the passages where Paul's talking about his life being poured out 
as an offering? Well, to understand that there was a wine offering that would have been poured over the sacrifice, um, the other sacrifice that was made. What Paul was kind of alluding to is that it's Christ's sacrifice was the ultimate sacrifice, but he is spending his life as that wine offering that would have been poured over that main sacrifice. Um, and so he's viewing his life as being poured out um, as a sacrifice back to God. Um, and so there's richness in understanding some of those sacrifices and those kinds of things. Uh, circumcision is another one of those cultural pieces that you need to understand what it is because if you look at circumcision in our context, it's a mom and dad's choice, you know, and sometimes it's made just because, you know, we, we do that as a family. I don't know why. You know, sometimes it's because health reasons. It is healthier, you know, or whatever. Um, and so a lot of times it, it has nothing to do with the context it's given in Scripture. Um, and so it is a sign that shows that the Jewish people are separate and called out. Um, understanding unclean and what that would have meant to the Jewish culture of the day. You know, that's how you understand the Gospels when Jesus heals the woman that's had 12 years of a bleeding problem. You understand just what she would have been up against, that she wouldn't have been able to live with her family. She was cut off from worshiping God. Um, she was not allowed to touch anyone because she was considered unclean. So basically, she's had 12 years of isolation. And when you're reading that story and you don't understand the rules in the Old Testament laws around being clean and unclean when it comes to a woman's cycle and bleeding issues, you wouldn't have a clue of understanding what that had cost that woman and what Jesus was giving back to publicly acknowledge her because she basically had been ignored and avoided for 12 years. And so when Jesus turns around and says, who touched me? and talks to her, he literally is, is acknowledging her, I see you, I see you. Um, and so what she gets back in that moment is just truly beautiful, but outside of the context, we don't understand that. Um, another thing would have been the New Testament early church. Uh, one of their biggest struggles was whether or not to eat meat sacrificed to idols. Um, and there was some pretty significant division within the church. Uh, Paul and actually confronts Peter on some of it. Uh, and so uh, to understand that at the time, you have to understand the culture that they were in. And, and, you know, for example, if you were in Ephesus, a lot of that meat was coming out of the worship of Diana and what was going on, and that would have been the cheaper meat. And Christians, honestly, did not have a lot of resources at times. Um, a lot of them had literally left land and stuff to flee persecution in certain places, and they had spread out into the known world. And they were lucky if they knew other believers, and, and you know, they would have been sharing the gospel and building church family, but still, <laughs> there was a lot of persecution in the places that they were. And, and Christians had... Um, reputations as being these stubborn, uh, you know, they believed this stuff so convincingly that they just, um, well, I think I quoted from a, a past episode that how the outside world saw them is they, they uh, were amazing businessmen. They were honorable and upright. Their only crimes was the ones that pertained to their worship of Jesus, this Christ. 
Um, and so anyway, the context of all of that is so important. The last uh, piece key to interpreting scripture is consultation. And this is your resource library. This is the stuff that I've kind of been talking a lot about along the way. Concordances, Bible dictionaries, uh, Bible handbooks, atlases and maps, commentaries. Uh, it's those kinds of things like, um, you know, some of the resources like Illustrated Manners and Customs of the Bible by J.I. Packer uh, and M.C. Tenney. You know, it's these kind of reference books that give you places to kind of go and look um, for some of this context. Well, the last thing I'm going to close with a little bit is um, just a really fun thing I found about the word equip uh, in Scripture. And it's, uh, it comes from a passage uh, in Ephesians 4, 11 through 12, um, where it says, uh, gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to build up of the body of Christ. Now, the interesting thing about this, this word is that it has different ways that it would have been used in the culture of the day. The first way it would have been used is the word equipped would have been used to mend broken nets. Fishermen, such as the disciples, would have would have been out fishing all day and their nets would have become torn and broken. So in the evening, they would repair or literally equip those nets so that the next morning they were ready to go. Uh, what a beautiful expression of what a pastor teacher is called to do. Okay, second way. Um, this same word is used for the setting of broken bones. Uh, it is a medical term. Two bones get out of joint. So what a doctor do? They would set them. They would mend them. He equips them would be how that word would be used. Um, so we need to be under the word of God with someone who is equipping us or healing the broken bones. The third way this word would have been used would have been uh, outfitting a ship for a journey. Uh, and the idea of this is preparing um, and equipping them for something that God wants them to do. Now, I love that because here we have one Greek word that has so rich in their cultural experience. So depending on who's using this word, it's going to have different meanings. For example, if I've got um, a disciple who was a fisherman using it, he might be coming at this predominantly through, you know, using it in a way to mean mending those nets, Okay. If we have, you know, maybe let's say Paul, um, who's been on a lot of ships and has seen the preparation of loading for a journey, okay, he, he might be using it in that way. Um, for example, Luke, the doctor, might actually use that word more in the doctor form of it. So the interesting thing is, is just the rich, richness of that original language. Um, and I, w I wanted to kind of give you some teasers for that. The other thing I wanted to kind of point out is, for example, if you were to read Revelations 1 through 3, what you have in the first three chapters is you have the context for who writes the book, where he's at, and what's going on in chapter 1. And then 2 and 3 are these letters to very specific churches in very specific towns. And so you have things like um, the church at Ephesus. Well, there's very specific things that when you look at the, the whole book of Ephesus, uh, Ephesians, and you look in Acts, it gives you some context for what's being said 
in this letter to this church. If I look at the church at Laodicea, the interesting thing about that church is that there were two aqueducts that were built, one from Hot Springs and one from Cold Springs. But by the time it got to Laodicea, the water was lukewarm no matter what they did with it. And so what does it talk about in the letter to that church? It talks about being lukewarm, and I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. And so what we get is because of the terrain and what was going on in the towns, they would have known that, and they would have known exactly what it was talking about. Um, and, and so the interesting thing is with each of those churches, to properly understand that letter to that church, you have to do something um, pretty extensive to understand the culture at the time, um, you know, to understand the day, the age, those kinds of things. Um, one thing that's pretty important is that some of them were city-states of the Roman government, which when you established a city-state, the first thing you would do is that you would literally carry the torch and you would start um, a fire, a torch in that city. And that literally was kind of the idea was this was birthed. So when we light this light, this city is born, this city-state for the Roman government. And so um, kind of one of the, uh, the things that kind of stands out is that every single Roman city-state would have had one of those, uh, a lampstand, so to speak. And so you'll see a lot of talk about lampstands in those letters. Um, and so those, those are, are examples of Scripture that it really does help to do your work to understand. Because if you just read over them, you're like, what is he talking about with lampstands? why would he say you're lukewarm and I'm going to spit you out of my mouth? Like, I don't get why that's so important for this. Um, and so my biggest thing for you guys is that when you read scripture, if you can go check out some of the details, scripture comes alive. It's context comes to life. The more you can recreate that original thing, the more it helps you to understand when scripture says that all scripture is inspired by God. Um, and then in the, other, in the other place where it says in Hebrews that um, it is living and active. Because scripture, although it had an original context, it speaks to us today. And understanding that original context helps us to understand what it's saying to us. Thanks for joining me. This has been Faith Foundations with Gwen McCaslin. Thanks for listening today. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. We'd love to hear from you, so find us on Facebook and Instagram at Open the Word Podcast or send us an email to openthewordpodcast at gmail.com. Is it time for you to plan a day trip with your peeps? Come and stay a while at Shia Market in Berlin. There is something for everyone, no matter what your taste or style may be. Visit the Village Gift Barn for your custom floral arrangements and timeless accessories for your home. Stroll upstairs to Shia Style Boutique for your perfect outfit. Everything from accessories to shoes. Be inspired at country gatherings with decor from modern farmhouse to transitional design. Then, meander through the gardens for a large selection of houseplants. And last but not least, order your perfect cup of brew at the Buggy Brew Coffee Company. End your day. 
By gathering to relax in our courtyard, you will leave feeling connected and refreshed. Step back in time with a stay at one of the oldest buildings in historic Berlin, Ohio, the Worthman House. This charming building has a rich history with origins dating back to as early as the mid-1800s. The newly restored two-bedroom, one-bathroom suite has hardwood floors and gorgeous chestnut trim throughout. It is also outfitted with locally made Amish furniture. It can sleep six and offers a beautiful panoramic view of Berlin's Main Street. Its location in the heart of Berlin is an ideal spot for walking to various restaurants and shops. Book your stay at the Worthman House through VRBO.